That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. My guest today is stand-up comedian Dan Soder, who you've seen on uh, the show Billions. He's got his own stand-up special. Um, I actually first saw him on Katie Nolan's podcast, uh, Garbage Time, and I believe on her show as well. But um, he's a funny dude, and I love talking to comedians. And we get into some interesting back and forth about stuff like uh, Dave Chappelle's sort of controversial recent stand-up and some of the people that we watched growing up that, that made us fall in love with comedy. Um, but Katie Nolan recommended that I have him on, and that's the new thing on the pod is trying to get my guests to recommend people that I should have conversations with. Um, so hopefully – uh, you guys will do the same. You can always hit me up on Twitter at Sarah Spain and let me know who you want to hear from. Always subscribe on iTunes and the ESPN app and the podcast app. Leave a review. Leave me all the stars possible. Tell everyone how amazing this pod is. Um, and, and of course, like I said, I want to hear from you on who you want to hear from and about. And Dan Soder was an interesting conversation. So here it is. Check it out. That's what she said. Happy to have on the show comedian Dan Soder. You can find live dates for his current tour at dansoder.com. Season three of Billions comes out at the end of March, and he's got a serious XM show, The Bonfire, with Big J Okerson. Dan is on because of a new part of my pod where I ask people on to recommend folks I should talk to. And via the recommendation of one Katie Nolan, you are now here. Oh, well, what a lovely recommendation from a person. Yeah. Who is completely wrong about dipping sauces? It's nice that she still recommended me. <laughs> I uh, I saw you on her show a couple times and then uh, watched your special. So um, I agreed with her that you'd be a good person to talk to, and I love talking to comedians. Um, so th- so this should be fun. And um, on my pod, I like to start very early, very beginning. And you were actually born in Hartford, Connecticut, not far from uh, ESPN's studios. And did you have yeah. any sort of idea that right nearby was the was the worldwide mecca of sports television? You know, it's, no, not really, because I was I was like one, two, I, I think like four or five when we lived in Hartford. But the one thing that I got from Connecticut was my parents bought a lot of Whalers gear, so I was good like, logo, really. Great logo, great song. One of the last, one of the last teams to have its own song. Uh, it was all, everything was going great, and then the Whalers got sold to, Car- <laughs> to South Carolina, and I was like, "Well, there goes the hockey team." We right. moved to Denver when I was five, so, so my are most sports, of my your affiliations are all over the map. Yeah, that's what I was to say. So, did you become a Colorado fan for most things? No, actually, uh, I'm stubborn, and uh, my dad is from the Bay Area. And raised me as a like devout 49ers and San Francisco Giants fan, and um, so moving to Colorado, it immediately was John Elway versus Joe Montana, mm. which I wasn't going to give up that argument. <laughs> and especially because I think I, I want to say the year we moved to Denver was the year that the Niners beat the Broncos 55 to 10 in the Super Bowl. So I was riding high moving to yeah. Denver. Good and, timing. And then um, yeah, great timing. And then the only Denver team that I picked up were the Nuggets because that was like my team that I got to pick when I was like 10, 9 or 10. Yeah. Your dad didn't have a team. Well, he had the Warriors, but he uh, he, he moved back out to California, and I was kind of like – I had a choice of going Warriors or Nuggets, and right now it looks like I made the decision of <laughs> right, going with the right. Nuggets. But yeah, I believe in them. In I love retrospect, them. I love you Jokic chose wrong. And, and Murray. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you, uh, what kind of kid were you? Were you always funny? Um, I was always 
sarcastic, which I, I don't know if I was funny all the time, but I was definitely like, I definitely like to um, get kicked out in the hall in class because <laughs> I knew that meant someone was like, I mean, yeah, that happened a lot. Like I talked to a lot of my friends that are comics and they're like, oh, I got in trouble suspended. They're doing like crazy stuff. I was like, no, I just had to go cool off. I just had like a little tiny five minute penalty box thing where I just had to go sit out in the hallway for being funny. Yeah, I never got in real trouble either. I always got sent to the principal for things like, you know, don't make a joke to your teacher about diaphragms or don't make a joke about, you know, shrinkage from watching Seinfeld to your coach. You know, things that are just very inappropriate, uh, but not full yeah. suspension worthy. Yeah, not, I think like when some of my friends tell me that, I'm like, what the hell were you doing? Because <laughs> I mean, I, all I had to do was just go. I think I got, I got, when I was in fourth grade, I got suspended from school because we did, I did get suspended. Damn it. You know, my memory, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just remember your this. whole premise has because been shot. Did, shot, just shot because I did, we did acronyms and, um, and onomatopoeias. So we were mm -hmm. supposed to make an acronym of an onomatopoeia. And I think I did like barf and poop. I did really just <laughs> hilarious things for a fourth grader. Right. Like, I think I was, I think I was killing with my class. My class was like, this guy is hilarious. And my teacher was like, yeah, you got to go to the principal. And the principal was like, yeah, see, you can't just write this stuff. And then I got sent home. So yeah, I did yeah. get suspended once. That's an interesting thing to get suspended for. I called someone a butthead and I had to draw it on the board. And the teacher thought that I would be embarrassed by having to draw a butthead, but I was just <sighs> in the spotlight, given my time yeah. to shine. So I really milked it. I enjoyed it. I think the butt was pooping that I drew. Ah, so that's what really backfired ask. for that teacher. <laughs> oh man! Because I was going to say it's it's really hilarious if the butthole becomes the mouth. That's Ooh, where it gets yeah, great. that's a, that was too advanced for me. I was too young for that, yeah. but yeah, um, artistically as well. I don't know if I would have nailed that. Um, so you're in high school, and what are you involved in? Like when you get to high school, are you in plays and stuff? No, no, no. I played football uh, from I played sports my whole life. You know, from like five years old. I think like five to seven, I wrestled. And then I played baseball from like five to ten, and uh, soccer. And then my mom wouldn't let me play football until I was eleven. For some reason, that was like her number. She's yeah. like, "When you're eleven years old, you can play football." Your brain will be like, fully All formed. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, my mom was way ahead with the CTE. Yeah, knowledge. she was way my ahead. Was like, she's like, "Listen, you can probably that big head can rebound from a concussion at eleven. <laughs> um, and I got a lot of them. So yeah, I played. Football starting at 11, and I was on, like, the worst Little League team of all time. Uh, one time we lost a game 116 to zero. What? Yeah, it was so bad. No slaughter rules there? No. This was this was 1994. They didn't care. They were like – Right. They were just – face masks were cool now. <laughs> <laughs> like they just started making cool face masks. They didn't care that kids were getting blanked 116 to zero. I mean, it was <laughs> – what a life lesson. I don't I pull the mercy rule. Let's make kids nicer. Yeah, these let's days, let's right? crush those souls and make them move on to something they're good at. I mean I, I promise you that is legitimately there was a lot I've learned so much from that loss. I just learned like, oh man, this is brutal. I just remember looking over a coach like, huh? We gotta go back out there. Yeah, like, we yeah, gotta keep trying. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow. man, it was it was real bad. I got I played like seven different positions that game. I think I moved. I played every almost every position on the field. It was crazy. Were you pretty um, good at then, sports? And then yeah, we moved up. What's that? Were you pretty good at sports? Uh, no. I think I was okay. And I think uh, like my you know 
my dad wasn't around. So I didn't, it was just like me and my mom. And I think I, I, ne- I didn't have any great coaches. So I never, I had to like learn everything myself. And by the time I got to high school, I got bigger and I could hit people hard. So, you know, I played linebacker and that was, but I wasn't like one of those kids who could just read the offense and be in the, I was just kind of like, Oh, I'll just go smash that guy with the ball. <laughs> and that was like the thing that I was good at where I was just like, no, I just hit, but I wasn't like, um, I wasn't like savvy or like super athletic. I was just kind of like, and I was the funniest guy in the locker room. And I think that serves a purpose. Yeah. Good teammate. Keeps everything light. Did yeah, you, uh, yeah, that was a lot of that was a lot of fun, you know. Football camp, doing uh, prank phone calls at night, and <laughs> it was uh, it was good. Man, Would you say you I, were uh, the coach appreciated you or no? Because I certainly had coaches that no. didn't love my mouth or the fact that I could remember that two weeks ago they'd said something different. Well, last week you said this. Okay, we get it. Just stop talking yeah. and go away. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I I definitely wasn't a coach's favorite because they were more like what. I think they were always just like, what's this bartender doing playing football? <laughs> like, I was always like, ah, this guy over here. And, like, Who the? and you know, right. like, coaches are a specific mentality. They're very discipline-oriented. They're very, like, detail-oriented. And I'm, I mean, I turned out to be a, a clown. So, of course, I'm not like, yes, sir. I love, <laughs> But I love football. I love football, and I love, like, I still love it. And I'm, I'm glad – I got to play it before all the science came out. Right, yeah. A lot scarier now. Uh, so you mentioned you yeah. were basically a bartender um, in high school, which explains why you chose University of Arizona to go to college. Uh, yeah. It's not quite yeah. ASU, oh, yeah. but it's close. <laughs> what, I mean, what drew you to it, U of A? <laughs> it, it, was, it, it felt like the smarter Arizona school. Right. Like ASU, you're like, well, yeah, anyone can go to ASU. And yeah, I'm saying that, Sun Devils, anyone can go there. You're Shots admitting fired. to 2.5 GPA. <laughs> Get over yourself. You're a party school. At least Arizona's uh, 3.0. Bear down, Cass. <laughs> That's the only school pride I have. It's trashing Arizona State. Uh, but good God, can they party? I mean, good God. Oh yeah. So yeah, oh, I, yeah. I got I uh, I got out of Colorado because I kind of just when I was a teenager, just kind of thought to myself like, if I stay in Colorado, if I go to like Colorado State, the University of Colorado, or Northern Colorado, I'll I'll just live here my whole life. Like I won't go anywhere because Colorado is unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, I'm so lucky that my mom moved there when we were five because it's like the people, the the scenery, just the way Colorado is just the attitude. It's it's, it's a great place to live. And I felt like, why don't I go somewhere else? And then I was like, Hey, I'll go to Arizona. It's decent school. I can get in. And it's going to be warm all the time. I think I was sick of snow <laughs> at the point. That makes sense. And what did? And I went and, and I hated it. Absolutely Why? hated it. Why? Uh, it was just the opposite of what I was. I grew up in kind of a uh, you know middle class suburbs, but I grew up definitely middle class, lower middle class, where it was like everyone worked, everyone had jobs, everyone's parents had jobs. No one, you know, we knew a couple rich kids, but most of my friends were like they weren't necessarily hard up for money, but they didn't have a lot of money. And going to Arizona, it was like, just felt like it was just all these rich kids from like San Diego and Long Island. And they're just like spending, you know, their parents money. And it just didn't, it just really rubbed me the wrong way, you know? And I was just kind of like, oh, I want to drink beers at a house party. I don't want to have to right. drink like gin and tonics at a club. <laughs> like who the hell are you? You're, so you're 19. When you look back now, do you think that 
they were actually sort of insufferable and obnoxious? Or do you think it was as much that you were sort of insecure about your not being like them? Yes, uh, uh, both. I both. think I think life is life is like, especially in today's like um, sensationalized culture where it's like either you're completely right or you're completely wrong. I think it's a mixture. I think it was like I was insecure because I wasn't like them and they were cooler and kind of more adult than I was, much more mature than I was. Um, and it's also because those people were insufferable people and I wouldn't have wanted right. to be like that. <laughs> so, so it's a mixture of like, right? yeah, it, it was definitely a thing. But this is why I, I, I just kind of have a big problem in today's society with like, uh, you know, all like the, um, the pharmaceutical ads and all this stuff of being like, you have to be happy all the time. Like you have, and it's like, I don't, I think that there's people with legitimate mood problems that, that need diagnosis and need help. But it's like, I remember being miserable at the University of Arizona, just being like, this sucks so bad. It's hot. All like, I just, I couldn't get basketball tickets. <laughs> I, I, all I wanted was tickets. <laughs> it's the only to reason to be there. <laughs> I mean, I swear to God, we had Lute Olsen. Oh yeah. my God, it was the year, my freshman year was the year after we lost to Duke in the finals when Shane Battier won it with Elton Brand, and then it was like, we had Celine Stoudemire. Ah, man, it was my fresh, my class, the class of 05 was so great at Arizona. So, like, the one thing I wanted to enjoy, I couldn't even see. And then it was just like, it, it got to this point where I got real into college radio, my, my college radio station, shout out to KAMP, Camp Radio. And then uh, I started, I was just like, I made a tape and I just bothered this radio station in Tucson until they gave me a job. And then it was like, awesome. Then I loved it. When you got there, did you want to do that? When you, like when you got, when you were leaving high school and people were like, what do you want to do when you grow up? What were you saying? I was like, get high. (laughs) I just wanted to to get, I just wanted to get high and drunk. I didn't care. Uh, I kind of knew I wanted to be a comedian, but I don't think I had the balls to tell anybody. I think I had told like a couple friends of mine, but that was it. Right. But it's, I definitely wanted to do comedy, but it was more like I also didn't want to tell anybody I wanted to do comedy because they'd be like, what? And they'd be like, ah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's hard because there's like an expectation of like, it's like saying you want to be any job that's very hard to succeed in. People are going to give you crap for that. But also um, because comedy is subjective, it doesn't feel the same as telling everyone, oh, well, I want to be a professor because I'm really good at math. Well, I want to be a comedian because yeah. I'm really funny. And people are like, are you? You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's also the thing is <laughs> comedy is one of the only things where everyone thinks they're funny. <laughs> like, everyone thinks they're funny. I, every single person. I've rarely met a person that's like, I'm not that funny. It's very few <laughs> and far between that people are like, I'm not that funny. It's just people are like, I'm hilarious. One of the worst <laughs> things you can say to a comedian is like, I better not end up in your act. It's like, trust me, you won't. You're not yeah. going to end up in my act. You're, You're not, not funny. At all. Yeah. Nothing you say at all. is funny. Yeah. So, yeah. You're, you are very forgettable, lady. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've said that like in my, I remember I had an ex-girlfriend's sister that would always say that. Am I going to end up in your act? It's like, if you keep saying shit like this, yes, because you're right. going to make me yeah. obsessed and then I'm going to have to Otherwise, I barely it. remember that you exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you, I definitely didn't have that, you know, I think clear of a direction. So you get to the radio station though, and they, they bite and are you doing material or are you hosting like a show oh no i'm doing like speed breaks i'm doing like front and back sales i'm working overnights i'm like i'm just learning it i just got into it because i had 
uh, in between my freshman and sophomore year, I went up to Kenai, Alaska, and worked at a salmon and halibut cannery, like a fresh, like a seafood cannery, and did um, did that for five months, and that was like it was like four to five months, but it was like you know crazy hard work, and it really kind of taught me like oh, I definitely want to do a job that I love because. Mm-hmm. A lot of the guys that I worked with on the dock crew were just kind of like guys that that's what they did every year where they would like go work this insane job. You know, they would do salmon and halibut and stick around or maybe do cod before that and then stick around for crab season. And you're like, you know, it's salmon and halibut's not dangerous, but crab sure is. And those guys are busting their ass. And I'm like, man, I just want to do something I like showing up to. Right. So you get back to school after doing that, and are you, like, reinvigorated to figure out what that is, or are you then even less Hell interested no, I got, in school? I got a bunch of money, and I was just getting hammered. And buying, <laughs> I, got, I bought a Costco membership. Oh, I went Whoa, not, big time. I blew, oh, I blew through that money like a complete 19-year-old idiot. I blew through that money. But because you had done that job and said, I don't want to do that anymore, were you then like, I don't even need college anymore because I know what I want to do and this is kind of not not my scene? No, my mom and I kind of had an agreement. Um, You know, it's been her and I most of my life since I was about five years old. And she was like, uh, like kind of a thing she told me, she's like, you do whatever job. I will support you in whatever job you want to do. But for me, can you please just get a college degree? Like that was real big for her. Cause I think I was the first person in my dad's family to get a, to get a college degree. And then um, like my mom's family, that's like a thing. Like, she's like, I want you to get a college degree. So it was like a mix. And I was like, yeah, all right. And so I kind of hung in there and worked at the radio station and started doing comedy when I was 20, 20, 21 years old, I think. And then, um, and then I was just doing comedy and radio and going to school. And that was it. So after you graduated, did you stick around in Arizona or did you head off somewhere else right away? Uh, I stayed. I, one of my buddies was a punter at the university of Northern Colorado. He actually was teammates with Vince Jackson when Vince Jackson was there. And my buddy got a couple workouts. He was was really good place kicker and punter. And we were drunk at Christmas (laughs) and he was from Denver. And I was like, dude, He's like, I'm, I'm going to move to a warm weather city so I can train, you know, for next season's training camp and try to get a, try to get a place on a team in the NFL. And I was like, move to Tucson. Come on. And he's like, if I move there, you have to stay there for at least a year. And I was like, all right. And so him, and then we talked to another buddy of mine that I grew up with into moving down to Tucson. And that was actually like, I worked at the radio station, did comedy, and then I got a second job at Bed Bath & Beyond to save up <laughs> money to move to New York. So were you doing stand-up spots around town in Tucson at that point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, When I started at 21, I kind of became quickly uh, obsessed. <laughs> so that's the best way to say it. I became like, I mean, there's like, I think there's like two, I live, I have like two lives where it was like before I started doing stand-up comedy and kind of who I was. And like when I started doing stand-up comedy, it was just, you know, it, it's, it's the same as any job that you devote your life to where you're just kind of like, you got in it and you're like, oh, this is the best. This is what I've been missing my whole life. Right. These are like the people I want to be around. They're broken in a similar way that I'm broken and they're kind of uh, all fun. And yeah, it just became a thing where I just started doing stand-up. You know, uh, in Tucson, I'd get up like, twice or three times a week, which is pretty impressive because there's only one comedy club. 
Yeah. So, like, stand-up is interesting to me because I was always interested in comedy growing up. But um, stand-up is so very specific. And when you're up there, you you are sort of high and dry. Like, if you stink at it, it's very yeah. clear. Um, you kind of got to go for it. And it's hard to figure out how it works, even though it feels very simple to sit down and say, I'm going to write some jokes with no context and no other scene partners or even like improv where it's off the top of your head. It feels safer to me. Um, so what yeah. was it about stand-up that drew you in as opposed to acting or trying to be a comedic, you know, on a sitcom or something like that? Uh, I don't know. Just from the time I was very, very little, I was really obsessed with uh, stand-up comedy. Like, like I loved, um, like, I loved watching, um, I remember, like, Robin Williams live at the Met. Uh, and my dad would let me watch Rodney Dangerfield hmm. and Eddie Murphy. Yeah, Delirious was, was like, my obsession. Yeah, the red leather uh, suit. Raw yeah. was Raw was the first thing I saw, and then I back and then I back watched Delirious and was like, oh my god! Like, yeah, it was one of those things where and coming to America and trading yeah. places. And my my dad was a massive Eddie Murphy fan and a big Rodney Dangerfield fan. So, and then you know when I was at my mom's house, I was I was allowed to watch like uh, Robin Williams, and I got really into Mike Myers and Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey specifically, mm. um, his time at SNL was like when I'd stay up and watch it. I mean, I loved SNL my whole life, but Dana Carvey was a guy that I was really, really obsessed with. Like, thought he was... I mean, his, I, I go back, I would argue his 1995 special critic's choice is unbelievable still. You can watch it on HBO Go. It's great. I've never seen it. I'll have to go back. I used to love Dana Carvey. Oh, it's like... I think the Niners just won another Super Bowl, and it's in San Francisco, and he's from the Bay Area, so it's just like... It's great. I love it. And uh, it's got chopping broccoli on there. It's got all nice, the Nice, nice. But did uh, you was SNL a dream for you or that was that was still that wasn't straight stand up, so it wasn't your thing? Uh I mean I loved SNL because I just loved um I just liked comedy. I liked all comedy. But stand up was like kind of my special thing, but I wasn't I know some guys that are like, I was watching old, you know, tonight shows just for the stand up. I wasn't like that. I just liked funny people and I just liked right. comedy. But uh and SNL was like the thing, you know, especially I was like 10 years old when it was the, that super all-star cast of like Phil Hartman, Dana Carvey, Mike mm -hmm. Myers, David mm -hmm. Spade, you know, Chris Rock, I mean, all the, just felt like everybody was on that when I was a kid. And, um, when I found out they did stand up, I was always super interested, but as far as myself doing SNL, um, it didn't, I didn't think it was an option. Until I was screen testing for Lauren Michaels, I'll just say mm -hmm. that. Like, I didn't think it was a possibility. I didn't think it was a possibility until I was standing on stage at Eight H, like doing impressions for Lauren Michaels, and I was like, "Oh, this—that's crazy." Could possibly be a thing. Yeah. So you mentioned that part of the reason that you were drawn to stand-ups is because they were like funny but broken. You know, that's such a through line that we always hear about. And actually, I was just watching the latest um, episode of Crashing, and they really dug deep into the, you know, the Artie Lang character oh, yeah, yeah. and, and, and yeah. drug issues. And, and there are so many comedians that we hear these stories of how they became that way. And there's even people who have come out and said, you know, I, I kind of pivoted from stand-up to something else because I wasn't broken enough. I was too happy to see succeed. <laughs> um, you, you strike me as a happy guy, but when you say people were broken and funny, what is it about you that feels like that connected for you? Oh, I mean, it just, it, it, you're talking to someone, you know, I abandoned, my, my dad basically abandoned me and killed himself by, through oh. drinking. Mm. And like, uh, you know, my mom was, my mom had a real bad drinking problem for a while and 
uh, dated a lot and kind of the guys that she brought around necessarily never, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that aspect. It could have got a lot worse, but definitely, uh, there was a time where, you know, my teenage years where I was just kind of, uh, just completely isolated. It was kind of by myself and the kids I was hanging out with were real rough. And, you know, I think there's like, um, like I said, when I got into comedy, I kind of felt like, oh, these are the people I was supposed to hang out with my whole life. Like, these guys right. get me. Like, I can make I can make these, like, super dark jokes, and they know it's a joke, and they're not going to be upset at me for, like, you know? It was the first people that let me, and I hate this because it sounds so corny and contrived, but it really is true where it was just like, ah, man, you guys are messed up like I am. <laughs> like, you're like, yeah. this is awesome. Right. He's like, great, can we, because I think I had a lot of anger, and I was, you know, my sister was killed in a car accident shortly after my dad died, and there was just a lot of. Was uh, she older or younger? A lot of, she was older. She's my half sister, and so you know that's like the whole long thing. But uh, yeah. you know, I think I think I just walked around as a teenager, pretty angry and, and just getting high and drunk a lot, and just didn't really have a place to put all that energy. And then, and then you know, always was a fan and a kind of slightly obsessed with comedy because it always just felt like a fun i like being funny and right I that's like what funny I asked. Do, you, do you do you feel like you you were drawn to it in part because um of of connecting with the other people and feeling like it was an outlet for your anger as much as you enjoyed entertaining people and being funny i think it, it was both? i think it was that to a certain extent of not connecting with like i think it was like um i think it was like 70 30 like 70 percent like love making people laugh 30% like, Oh, I feel comfortable around these people. Like I feel, yeah. and also the, what's great about standup is from an, as someone that's played sports, it's competitive. Oh yeah. It's very competitive. <laughs> it's hyper competitive. It's and cutthroat it's like, too. Yeah. And I love boxing. I've grown up loving boxing. Don't like getting punched. Don't like punching people in the face. Uh, love it, love it. Um, you know, MMA. I'm a fan of the boxing. There was something about boxing. I don't know if it was because my my dad's family watched it or whatever, but there was something I always just loved about it. Where I read this interview with Gary Shandling when I was like very the first started doing comedy, and he was like, "Yeah, it's like prize fighting. You just you you prepare. You have all these things. You go out there and you just get hit in the face. And you're like, oh, all the you know, all that preparation goes out, and now I have to adapt and change. Yeah, that sucks. And it was like, no one liked that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it does, but it's like, it happens. What I love about stand-up is it's very humbling. Right. Very, very humbling. No matter, like, like you see the greats. I watched Chris Rock and, and, and Seinfeld and Louie before he got taken down. Is like, you watch him work out, and you're like, these guys are unbelievable. They're still going in there yeah. trying to find hard audiences to get their jokes over because they want to make sure their jokes work. Yeah. I'm kind of intrigued by that too, because I think obviously there's something about once you've got a reputation for being very funny and for being well-respected, people want to laugh, right? Whereas if they don't know you at all, they're like, all right, let's see what you got. Like you got to prove oh. it to me. Right. So, yeah. but there are times like, for instance, there was the two new specials from Chappelle and um, the first one, the live set at the bigger theater, I thought was really smart and really funny and really well thought out and did the best of what he does, which is to be sort of subversive and challenging but funny. And the second one in the smaller club, I really thought it wasn't good. I didn't think it was funny. I thought oh, the people that were there didn't think it was funny. I thought he hadn't that's fully. so funny. 
See, you that's, loved it. See, a lot. I thought he hadn't fully thought through the bits, and that that was the best they, part. That was the right, best part that, for me. To me, like, I thought it was it was hard to watch someone that I respect and think is so great and and not have it fall so flat for me. Okay, and see, here's the thing that I love is like, I think um, specials oftentimes there's a lot of sweetener added to it, whether it be camera angles or whether mm-hmm. it be like. Mm-hmm. The way it's shot, the way it's edited, the way it, the, the the laughs are juiced up or whatever, and there's like this thing of like it's palpable. It's palpable for a lot of people. They can just they can gut it, and they're just like, yeah, that's and, and it is. It's like your your bits are all shiny and, and polished and put together well, but that's not what stand up is. Like stand up's gritty. It's like you're trying to work out these these thoughts and Tough you think stuff, they're funny. Yeah. And, and the the thing I loved about Chappelle's special from the belly room was I was like, man, this is, I watch him at the cellar and it's like, yeah, this is like watching him at the cellar. This is like, and he was, he was going after, he was going after things that I think people are afraid to talk about because they're afraid to be, because they're afraid to be wrong about it. Right. Like I said earlier, it's like, we live in this culture of you have to be completely right or you have to be completely wrong. And that's not how, what life is. Life is like learning and understanding through mistakes. So to watch Chappelle just kind of unpack that and, and just go after things where, I mean, I laughed so hard when he was talking about gay men know who they are and they're not allowed to be themselves. And he's like, gay men are so confident. And then that hostage situation where he's like, I'm thirsty. And he's <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. He goes, David, You're get I'm us killed, man. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, what's great about that moment is you saw him get there through kind of sifting through other things. And you're like, that is so pure. Like it's it's unbelievable. I loved it. I loved yeah. it, and I love. I thought that's how the first what, one felt. Like that he knew he was t- t- touching tough stuff, but he was finding a way to make it funny and smart and thoughtful. And there were moments yeah. of that in the second one. It just the there there were a lot that didn't fly for me. And Chappelle is an interesting one because I think he has earned such incredible respect that um, you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, even if it doesn't all hit. Um, and that's got to be tough when you're not there yet because every time you go up, even if people know you and you're doing shows like Billions and you've got your own special and people have heard of you and want to laugh, you're still someone that they don't know if it's going to be the entire show full of, like, belly laughs. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's the worst and it's the best. There's nothing worse than just an okay set. <laughs> There's nothing worse than just an okay set. You're like, do I keep this? To- it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't that good either. Well, sometimes you don't know. There's some, I mean, like the thing about stand-up that I love is you never know how it's going to go, honestly. And people are like, well, that's not true. You know, you're going to, you're going to, you probably know this joke gets a laugh. It's like, no, I know that joke gets a laugh, but how hard of a laugh and how do I tell it? And do I hit it? And do I jump right into another bit behind that, that gets a bigger laugh behind that? Like, and then that's a set. Like, do I have a good set? Or if I'm having a good show, it's like, do I carry it? I'm still working a lot of comedy clubs where they draw checks halfway through the show so you're doing your act and you're like i hope i don't i'm not doing a long bit when they start passing out a math quiz to the audience because then it's just going to be then the energy's gone and people are paying attention they're like oh my god I, we had two buckets of beer and you're just standing up there like yeah this <laughs> right. is, uh so my dad's dead and they're like okay and this, yeah. is this weird energy you had the cosmo Where, yeah it's <laughs> awful it's awful and then there's like for some reason, people think it's a good idea to go sit in a dark room and listen when they're blotto, when they're just yeah. like hammered. And you're yeah. like, guys, 
you're going to be a problem because inevitably humans are just pretty monkeys. And we just see another <laughs> monkey talk and we're like, I want to, when you're hammered, you're like, I want to talk too. And you're yeah. like, no, you can't. It's based <laughs> on timing and momentum. There's like social cues right now. So it's just like whenever, whenever I see a comic who I know sells out theaters and just does like, and I know it's just like performing for their audience and they're like, comedy is hard. I'm like, no, man, the guys I listen to are like, the comics that are still on the road were like, I don't know. These, these guys are all animals. <laughs> You're like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. We were talking on, on the Levitard show the other day about, like, th- would you rather have the career of Kevin Hart, where he's maybe not quite as respected? A lot of people love him. He can sell out arenas. He's got tons of money. Or someone like Chappelle, who's, like, one of the most respected oh, in the mean, industry. And for I you, don't. I would imagine it's got to be Chappelle, even if you know that Hart made $100 million more than him last year. I mean, no offense to Kevin Hart. I think Kevin Hart is insanely talented. I think he's, and I find him hilarious. I I love Kev, but Dave Chappelle's in my mind the greatest comedian of all time. So really? I don't think there's like better than Eddie I don't Murphy. Think there's any argument. Eddie Murphy did it for. I mean, I don't know, talent wise, maybe, but if if a guy if, is Jim Brown better than Tom Brady? Right. Maybe. It's generational, right? Yeah. I don't know. Talent-wise, maybe. I mean, Jim, Jim Brown's an insane athlete. They had to change the rules of lacrosse because of him. Like, Jim Brown's like a superhuman athlete. And it's like, but Tom Brady's played for 18 years at the top of his game and, and won Super Bowls and turned New England into a dynasty. And it's like, you got to kind of look at, like, Eddie Murphy, no one will replicate what Eddie Murphy did. And I think Eddie Murphy, like, powers-wise, is unbelievable. But to me, I think Dave Chappelle is just, in my mind, as someone that does it, I think he's the best of all time. He's my favorite. I'll just right. put it like that. I think he's my favorite. But he walked away from, I don't know, it's, it's crazy. I think it's hard to, to, to put in words without sounding like a pretentious but like Give Chappelle is at the <laughs> very top. Mm-hmm. Like season three of Chappelle's show, season two, it, it was 15 years ago, so people forget. You couldn't walk anywhere without hearing I'm Rick James, right. without hearing uh, Game blouses. Yeah, people doing <laughs> Little John, and it's like I was uh, I found out about Dave Chappelle in 1996 when he did an HBO half hour, and I was like obsessed with it. And then when he put out Killing Him Softly in 2000, I was like, this dude's the greatest of all time. And I was already at that point well well familiar with Richard Pryor's Live in 1978, which I think is the best special of all time. Back to my point. Chappelle just kept like going up and going up and going up and then did Chappelle show. Like, yeah, you could say he never had a hit movie, but Chappelle changed the way they make deals because of Chappelle show. Like mm. he got that DVD money, which was crazy. And then walked away from it right. and then came back and got a bigger deal and put out four specials. It's just, it's, I don't know. I think like, I think Kev is, I think Kevin's like really talented and killing it right now. But I think it's like Puff Daddy versus Biggie in yeah. my mind. You know what I mean? Like I think Well, Kevin Kevin's much is, more palatable. The jokes are simple yeah. and accessible and you don't leave that show and think deeply about them. But everything Chappelle does makes you it's social commentary disguised as as comedy and it and it and changes the way people view things. After after Chappelle's he's done, just, which is yeah, I, he which, just made me laugh 
to which is kind of like it is. Yeah. Like I think um, I think Louis C.K. was like that too, and I wonder like when you're watching somebody like Louis C.K. And we didn't all know this at the time. Maybe some people did that he was really like airing out a lot of his own issues when he was doing his stand up, right? He was telling us about his own struggles while disguising it as just larger, larger commentary on, on men and women and whatever. Um, it can, it can be hard to digest, but it's, it's worth discussing, right? Like his SNL monologue about like pedophiles was really tough for a lot of people to get through, right? Um, but yeah. when you're, when you're watching comedians do that, um, do you admire it? Does it strike you as yeah, hell yeah. masturbatory, uh, though? Uh, here's the weird thing, and, and, and this is something I can say where um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give By the way, I just realized that anybody. I should, masturbatory is a weird word for Louis C.K. because that's no, specifically like, like his purpose. issue, but I meant it in the yeah, broader you sense. Should have said, you should have said, close the door, <laughs> right. masturbatory issues. I'm like, oh, right. Sarah, oh Over is, the phone. I right. feel like you're just really, yeah. I'm going to hang up. I'm going to do what they should have done and hang up. Um, there's, I think, to me, when I see someone doing that, I look at it as a form of honesty. Even if they're not basically being like, I do this and I've done that, it's a form of honesty, which I think makes them a better comedian, as opposed to there's a lot of people in comedy, a lot of very, not very famous people in comedy who talk a lot of shit but don't live that life. Right. So they're, they're talking a lot of stuff where they're like, I, this is my opinion. And, and you're like, I, I know who you are. And I know <laughs> that's not what you mean. And that's disgusting that that's what you're doing. And maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm a dumb idealist and I might be, I might be dumb, but I really give a shit about stand up comedy. And so when I see someone being like, sure, I never get laid. It's like, dude, you're a f- hound. It's like, right, right, I right. Back, you just got laid twice in a weekend. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm awkward. It's like, you right. lying asshole. Like, Wait, you, so, you but, can write about, you, you can write jokes about the truth. It, it's, uh, well, I, I find it deceptive. I find it right. very deceptive. You don't, you like, don't, what, what you don't want it to be performative. You, like maybe hyperbolic where they take something real and make it bigger, but not just yeah, flat out non That's what comedy is. Everyone right. does that. Like that's, that hyperbolic thing is like, that's the basis of a joke. It's like right, you take one thing. So you're okay like, with that, but you don't want just pulling stuff out that's like blatantly false. I guess it's, Presenting your, I don't, I don't, I don't really know because this is where it gets dicey. I'm talking about specific. I'm like not trying to name people, but in my head, I'm right, talking you're about thinking people. Thinking about like, them, <laughs> I know, I know you're full of shit. like I just know. And I watch them on TV, and they're like, "Well, you know," and you're like, "I just know you're full of shit. But I find that to be more masturbatory than what Louis did. Yeah, yeah. Because I that honesty like, is where you find the good stuff usually. So just putting on oh, this yeah. facade is not. As useful to you know how weird it would be if I did jokes about my dad dying and then I got off stage and called my dad and was like, killed yeah. it. You'd be like, yeah. oh, yeah, what? that's you that's... sociopath. Yeah. So that that brings me to another question, which is um, not hopefully the case. But, you know, Amy Schumer does a lot of stuff about her own, you know, sexual freedom. And then after the fact, she'll often say, like, I'm not 
as it's not as aggressive as people believe it to be. It's sort of that hyperbole of taking a one or two yeah. funny situations and blowing it up. Um, she, I'm a huge fan of hers. I think it's interesting how we've seen her go from like the thing to people wanting to take her down. Um, and you did oh, her show well, I mean, and you that, did train wreck. And what, what do you make yeah, of like it, her sort of ups and downs already? I mean, listen, I'm, I love Amy. I've known Amy, you know, 11 years at this point, And, it, you, it's interesting watching someone you know and someone you're friends with go through a thing of becoming incredibly famous and then watching what feels like all of America be like, all right, let's take her down a peg now. Right, like, exactly. Weird. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Um, I think it is one of those things where, uh, again, we, we talked about it when she, when she talks about her sexual freedom or whatever proclivity on stage and then gets off. And it's like, it's not really like that. It's like, yeah, that's kind of the hyperbole of comedy where it's like, you can base it on a real thing and then kind of make it like either a crazy example, but I don't know. I, I, that's not really mine to speak on because that's her. But I, I, I know Amy is telling the truth. Amy's one of those people where sometimes she's honest to the point that she gets in trouble for it. Where you're yeah. just like Amy, yeah. shut up! Like you're going to get in trouble for that. But <laughs> right. I definitely think Amy's in a different level. I don't know. You know, I knew her when we were in the clubs coming up, and she's been nothing but great to me, putting me on inside Amy, and uh, you know, fun makeout session and train wreck next to a dumpster. Uh, that was great. <laughs> um, but it is like Amy's one of those people where you're like, man. If you think it's easy being famous, or if you think oh, you yeah. want to be famous, or if you think you want to invite that into your house, like just, ah, oh, man, be friends with someone that's famous. Watch one of your friends get famous, and then real tell fast, me if you want to be famous. Yeah, real, really it fast, is, especially the way she did. Yeah, I mean, just fast, just, and, and yeah, it was like one of those things where I was like, Jesus. And that's another reason I kind of got off Twitter, or just stopped going on Twitter. I took it off my phone. Is like. People just bring you into it when they're trying to trash her. They're like, yeah, you're friends with her, right? Shoulder, she sucks. And you're like, yeah. dude, she's my friend. What are yeah. you talking about? Yeah. And then you waste Jill time arguing Pickle, with them and you're like, Jill why Pickle do I care? 71? <laughs> yeah, why, do, why am I trying to impress some dude who has his, you know, his German shepherd as his profile pic? Like, <laughs> dog Abby. Hashtag dog Abby. Yeah. Which makes me mad because yeah. I love dogs. But yeah, dog Abby's yeah, are dead. Who ringer. does it? Yeah. Um, so. Speaking of like big breaks, like she was this like overnight. I mean, obviously she was plugging along for a while, but then when it hit, it got big quick. You've had like, you know, you've got billions, you've got um, Comedy Central specials. Um, and then when have there been moments where you're like, this is it, this is the big thing. And then it just no, wasn't what you I, thought. No, no, I, I, I'm kind of lucky in, in the fact that just I get to do like a lot of cool stuff and not have to. I don't know. I don't really know if I have that because I think it's a certain gear and, and Kev and Amy definitely have it. That gear of like, I'm going to be famous. I'm like, <laughs> yo, I am good. If I can buy my mom a water heater and I can right. buy a couple PlayStation games and tickets to Niner games like three yeah. times a year. I'm, yeah. You're like, I'm going to make, be a speaking role. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's so much fun. To work two days out of ten. Do you know how much yeah. Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti have to work? So much. Yeah. Uh, I'm acting like I could do that. Um, no, I, I couldn't. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is basically, like, I think there is, like, a thing. Uh, I I just want to gain fans for the right reasons. 
And however long that takes, um, uh, I'm committed. Like, I just kind of want to, you know, it, I'm getting to the point now where I'm finally selling tickets. Uh, right. You know, I've been on the road for a while and, and apologizing to waitresses and being like, eh, sorry, I thought there going to be more people. And it's like, <laughs> I, I just don't want that. I don't give a yeah. about People Magazine or National Enquirer. I just, I, I, I want waitresses to, to be able to work a weekend at a comedy club when I'm doing like, oh, made so much money, sold tickets. And you're right. Like, oh, well, thanks. so does that ever, so when you look at someone like Amy or Kevin, is there any part of you that wishes you were like that? Because I struggle with when I was Never. first coming up in the early 20s, I was like, I'm so ambitious. I'm going to get it. And now that things are going well enough that I'm very happy, I've, I've yeah. lost a little of that. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think now I'm seeking happiness versus fame, 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 like just keep going, keep going. Cause I think if you're never satisfied at any point, if you're always looking at what's next, that's not probably the happiest existence, but I also yeah, sometimes I feel guilty that I'm not that person. That's like, when at all costs, get better, get more famous, get richer. See, I think you can be, I don't think you have to be all of those things in, in order to keep a part of that alive. Like I'm very much still very like, I want to be the best, like, I want to be as good as I can be at stand-up comedy. Like, it's my favorite thing in the world, and it's like, I get these other jobs that are so much fun. Like, doing the bonfire with Big J. Okerson, he's, I used to open for him. I truly believe he's one of the funniest human beings on the planet. Like, out of everybody, this guy makes me laugh so damn hard. And the fact that Comedy Central was dumb enough to give us a radio show on Sirius <laughs> four days a week, two hours, with no one telling us what we can do, it's like, why would, what would I give that up for? To be on the red right. carpet and be like, thanks, <laughs> right. guys. There's a lot going on. I was like, oh, <laughs> get the hell out of here. Thanks. I think it's like, yeah. I, I'm very lucky that I love the work part of it. I love the work part of it. I just love. That's I love, super you know, important. Like, yeah, sometimes, and you, you travel a lot, but I, I assume it's pretty much the same with you. It's like, you wake up some days and you're like, I get to do this as a job. Yeah, yep. Yep, like, most days. I, I think people, again, like a, a big problem I have with like the, the Instagram age and like the, the kind of like social media age is it's like, like young people especially are being told to live these like unrealistic lives where they're like, be the best at your career, find the perfect mate, never have bad skin. And you're like, you're going to go crazy. <laughs> you're going to yeah. go crazy. Find something you love to do or find someone that you love to be with, hopefully both, and just do that. And yeah. just and just just do that. Just And hopefully you're good at that. it. That's the other thing that stinks is yeah. you, know, you, you raise a whole generation of people and tell them, do what you love, only do what you love, find your passion. And if they're not good at it, then they're like, well, I failed at life. No, some people just have to do jobs, That's and that's okay. Yeah. You know, then, yeah, then find the things fine. that you love that aren't your job if, you, if you're not good at the things you love. Like, some people, that's, if that's the way it is. If you're not good at the thing you love, find, find a hobby you love that, right. can, that yeah. can stint stint that, you know. Like, I, I realize there's not janitors that are like, I wanted to be a janitor. But it is it is one of those things where, yeah, some people are just going to have to have jobs, but find a hobby. But, right. you know, back to, like, what I was telling you, I, I don't know if we were on air or off air, but about, like, people who troll online and you're like, yeah, no one's trolling when they're happy. Yep. And it's like, just go find something that makes you happy. A person, mm -hmm. a place, a thing. I don't know. Just, 
you owe it to yourself. A cause. You do owe yeah. it to yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think social media has opened us up to a lot of terrible things about people that maybe we thought were in smaller pockets and are much more yeah. widespread. And one of them, I think, is just like deep dissatisfaction and wanting to take it out on other people. I don't have any friends who would go online and be just telling people that they're fat and ugly and they hate them because they don't like their comedy or their sports opinions or whatever. So I do oh. try to remind myself most of the time that these people are probably very sad. And that then I feel sorry oh, for them. They don't yeah. make me mad. Yeah. There's, 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 not a, there's not a guy like – even if there is a guy who's a successful CEO, <laughs> beautiful wife and kids, if he's like – Going online and being like at Amy Schumer, like, I hate you. You yeah. suck so much. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What is broken on the inside of yeah. you? That, yep. that is how you scratch that itch. Like, totally. that's crazy. I always think it's just funny because I'm like, I've met people who have trolled me, and they're never like <laughs> as combative or energetic as they are online. Oh, of course like, not. They have ah. to look you in the face and they have to worry about you punching yeah. them and they have to have some sort of psychosomatic connection between their brain and their eyes as they look at your reaction and think, well, this is mm-hmm. a human being I'm saying this to. This is bad. I shouldn't do this. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. I mean, yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting time to be uh, a comic because I think it's like you're watching – Social media, just white clean social programming of like decency, totally. of just basic decency. Totally. You're like, oh, you, oh, you're gonna look at your phone all the way up the stairs of the subway. Cool. So there's <laughs> right, not right, a right, whole right. busy train that just got off behind you, and you're just checking your Instagram. I can see you what you're looking at. <laughs> you can't get off your phone and be like, right. it was the doctor who told me. It's like, no, yeah, no, no. It was really you, important. I, I, My kid is sick. No, no. You're yeah, learning I, how to make good eyebrows. Yeah, I just saw you double tap kids getting hurt. I I love that. <laughs> I follow them too, and I uh, want to look at them at the top of the stairs. Yes, once like I've a arrived. decent person. Uh, all right, well we're running out of time, so we got to do the one thing that everybody has to do, and nobody expects it. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's the natural talent you'd like to be gifted with? Uh, uh, musical ability. None, none at all. You got none. None. Can't (laughs) sing. Can't. Ah, look like Steve Martin and the idiot. I um, (laughs) when he gets his rhythm, so good. Yeah. Uh, Number two. What's your desert island album? You can only have one. Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh God! Um, of all time, uh, Rolling Stones' Exile on Main Street. Mm, Good one. Uh, three, if you could switch lives with someone for a day, who would it be? LeBron James, just to just <laughs> yak on someone. <laughs> just uh, come down the lane and just like, bah! Just physically own everyone around you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be so cool. Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? I got robbed in 2004 in Tucson. I got hogtied and pistol whipped because I was a drug dealer. And a uh, dude put a 45 in my temple. That was oh. pretty terrifying. Whoa, were By the mistaken way, identity you or were that, you getting in some stuff? Uh, I just lived with a guy. You can hear that story on This Is Not Happening on YouTube right now on Comedy Central's page. The full oh. story's up. Oh, is that the Roy Wood? No. Yeah, is that it, was Ari Shafir's show that they gave. Yeah, that, uh, Roy Wood Jr. I, I call it, yeah, Roy Wood Jr.'s uh, stepdad in it. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Check All right. out if, you watch, if you watch This Is Not Happening, check out the T-shirt I'm wearing. It's an Ari Shafir t-shirt. Big up to the Sherpa. 
Oh, I kept it no. real. All right, I, nice. I, I like that. trying to block me. From You're that. kind of treating Roy Wood Jr. like he's your stepdad. You're not my real hey, dad, Roy, Roy. I'm going to be in my room. Shut up, Roy. <laughs> I'm going to wear my real dad's face on your stupid yeah. show. But I'm still going to come I'm on it because it's good for my career. <laughs> I'm not going to call you dad, Roy. Roy's got a great stepdad name. Shut oh, up, I love Roy. Roy. He's the best. Uh, we went to exactly. one of the Cubs playoff games together, and oh, he's, so, he's so like first level that instead of bringing signs, he brought like an iPod or an iPad and was writing the various signs and then erasing and rewriting them on his iPad and holding it up like a sign. Oh God, <laughs> I love him. He is one of the best. I hope. He's awesome. I mean, oh, yeah. God, I love Roy. I'm, I'm a big Roy Wood Junior fan. Yeah, he's awesome. I have to go check so that out. That, that story he, sounds yeah. insane. Uh, number five. What would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh, that goes. I mean, how deep are we going? Are we go as personal? deep as you want to go, uh, man. <laughs> uh, probably, probably uh, prof- my biggest professional failure was uh, not getting SNL. I uh, you know it's a weird thing to say, but it's like it happened so quick, and I got so close that it just really stung when I didn't get it for a yeah. while. Dude, I know people go, like, "Shut up, idiot!" Like you get to work, do your job. It's like, yeah, but. You don't realize it's like when you hear an athlete be like losing a Super Bowl sucks. So shut up, you're in the Super Bowl. You're like, yeah, yeah idiot. You weren't you weren't there. You weren't yeah, that- at the Super Bowl. You weren't you weren't taking in those emotions and that feeling of like this is the only time I'm going to be here and I got to win this thing. I think that's what sports fans do where they're like, stop being over dramatic. You're like, hey, <laughs> dip, you're on the couch. Like, yeah, this, this was in this was my life's work culminated. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, Mark like, Maron has made like a whole career out of regretting not making SNL. So you're you're good. Yeah, you can talk about all yeah, you want. Yeah. It, <laughs> and it's it's crazy to be like, oh, all right, now Lauren's gonna watch you do seven minutes, and you're like, okay, I'll just character out cast. This is where Bill Murray once stood. <laughs> right. I'm in my pants. <laughs> yes, I'll just do the Will Ferrell cat thing. They won't remember it's already oh, yeah. been done. Oh yeah, uh, uh, maybe yeah. Uh, maybe get off the shed. I'll play over again. If you don't remember. <laughs> uh, number six. What habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Empathy. Oh, I think. That's um, a good one. I think uh, I don't. I don't take some stuff personally because I think mm-hmm. people are just going through some stuff, and I, I yeah. think we're all going through stuff. And I think it's like you can kind of understand that people have a whole host of feelings that you don't even know about because you can't look in their heads. I think it just kind of makes. Kind of brings everyone in my mind. It brings everyone. To, we're all on the same level. Yeah, you know, like it, it sure. helps me deal with like if I'm around famous people, I'm kind of like we're, they're going through stuff that we have no idea. And if you're around a poor, like you know, a homeless person on the street, you're like you have no clue why and what led to that. And totally. I, I just think, I just think there's a lot of like, let me, I'll tell you what's good for that person, and you're like, man, <laughs> you, can't, you can't tell. I, I don't even know what's good for me. I'm still an idiot, and I'm I'm, I'm having a good time, and I'm like, uh, I'm broken, <laughs> you know. Like I would, yeah, I'm a yeah. I don't know. I have to see. Yeah. Uh, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, probably following through on stuff like. Our, our fans of our radio show have been waiting for t-shirts for three years. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> come on, dude. Like, come on. This is re- like, th- people are making their own shirts. And we also had people buy t-shirts from Wawa <laughs> online. And there's like a lot of Wawa shirts where you're like, those could have been t-shirts that we made that were right. fun. So, yeah. And if you're listening, if any campers are listening, I, I want to write Chicago <laughs> is an online, which is our radio 
series. I don't know. I want to follow through. I want to follow through and actually right. start doing stuff. All right. Now's the time to start. You've planted a flag going forward. Yeah. Be a, be a person who follows through. You've sent it to yeah. the universe. Yeah. Send it out into the universe. Um, finally, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh, how do I get down to three? Uh, a good dude. <laughs> <Just> a good <laughs> dude. Very simple and to the point and very all-encompassing yeah. as well. Um, although I did just have a conversation with someone that was trying to describe one of their like uncles. It's like, he was such a good dude. I mean, he was wildly racist, but such a good guy. And I was like, um. Oh, I yeah. No, so, I don't want any caveats. I don't want any. Uh, <laughs> no caveats adults. for you. You just yeah, want no a good caveats. dude, all encompassing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's it. Yeah. And then. And I want um, to learn bo- how to use words properly. That's all <laughs> I'll say. I got it. Uh, the bonus is. Who would you who would you recommend that I have a conversation with on that's what she said? Oh, uh Nate Bargetzi, one one thousand percent. One of the best stand up comedians, one of my favorite human beings, one of my best friends, and one of the biggest Vanderbilt sports fans. Okay, we could talk Jay Cutty. We could talk a little cutler and, action. <laughs> oh, he loved Jay Cutler. And uh interesting story about Nate never went to Vanderbilt. So that I'll let him explain that. Unique. Uh, well, anybody oh, who's a in. huge fan of Jay Cutler, I think, needs to come on the pod. Just, uh, I'm sure there's some interesting, deep, dark questions and conversations to be had about about what's going oh, on yeah. in that he'll, brain. Uh, he'll have a great time. He's, uh, I say, Nate Bargatze. Awesome. Hey, thanks, Dan. This was really fun. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Sarah. I had a good time. That's what she said. This week's "That's What She Read" is from BuzzFeed. Um, it's by a reporter named Remy Smith. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And I was sort of struck by reading this story about the survivors of the Parkland High School shooting, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting. I was in Florida, uh, in Miami, not too far from there when it happened. And um, my colleague Stu Gotts, uh, his daughters, go to, to a school nearby, a private school nearby, but he lives in Parkland just down the street from this high school. And the story is called, Here's What It's Like at the Headquarters of the Teens Working to Stop Mass Shootings. And a handful of the teens from that school are getting together and trying to make a change. And unlike uh, other shootings, um, particularly shootings of very young children, these victims have grown up in the era of school shootings. And they've had conversations. In fact, according to one report, one of the classes was having a conversation about school shootings when the gunman entered the school. They are a totally different group of victims and they are old enough to be heard from. They're old enough to give their own thoughts and arguments and pleas on behalf of change. And so uh, they are giving me hope that this one will be different. And I'm not saying how or why or what combination of efforts needs to be done. There are people who are paid and um, are educated enough to understand what sort of multifaceted approach will work best to try to curb gun violence it's been done in many other places. It can be done here, assuming that we try to actually make action our focus instead of dialogue back and forth, the same loop over and over. And the reason I think it might be different this time is because of these kids deciding to make a change, speaking out, taking action, and coming together. And, and, and it talks about how, you know, amid sometimes tears and sometimes laughter and sometimes panic attacks, they've been gathering at people's homes and planning the March for Their Lives, a March 24th demonstration that they hope will sort of announce their movement, doing uh, phone interviews, doing TV interviews, talking to people about how it felt for them to be in that 
situation and what should be done next. So um, it made me hopeful that this might be different this time. And like I said, it's on BuzzFeed.com. Here's what it's like at the headquarters of the teens working to stop mass shootings is the headline. And Remy Smith, S-M-I-D-T, is the author. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.